All right, well, let's pick up where we left off last week. Now, we've been in this series called Identity Crisis, and we're trying to discover what is the identity of the church today. And as we develop this, we begin to look and say, you know what? We don't know what the identity of the church today is. Because what you call church, what you call Christian, all of those different things have different nomenclatures that are used throughout the world, throughout the U.S. It can mean one thing to one person and another thing to another. When you have an atheist church, we've lost the definition of the word church. Fair enough? It doesn't make any sense, but that's what they do. Do you realize that there is literally, I know this is going to sound weird, this isn't what they would call them, but it is what they are. They're atheist worship songs. I don't know how that works. I don't know why it works. Like, bow down before all matter. I don't know. But as we begin to define the term identity, we need to know what that means. And this is the definition that we've been using. We pulled this right out of the dictionary. It is right there. There we go. It's the collective aspect of the set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. A set of behavioral or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognizable as a member of a group. And it's the quality or condition of being the same as something else. It is the marker of which you can represent or recognize something immediately. Okay? Now, if a woman were to walk into this room all dressed in a robe with a thing around her face, what was the first thing that would come to mind? Muslim. Immediate. Why? Because that is one of the characteristics that we see. It's recognizable. We know what it looks like. We expect that. Those are markers that are very obvious, but there are some that are not so obvious. And when it comes down to being a born-again believer, not a church member, because that can mean anything. Again, you could go to that atheist church. You know, have fun with that. But what does a Christian look like? And what does a Christian talk like? And how does Christianity impact every phase of their life? And this is the part we've gotten away from. Because that's where the argument lies. It's not so much of, am I a Christian? Because we don't even know what that means. We just kind of throw these terms around loosely. But if somebody is truly born again, then there are things attached to that and certain characteristics that must be met to meet the standard of what a Christian is. Right or wrong, it's just reality. There is an expectation, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, at least there was, of what you will behave like and what you will do. And so when we read last week, John chapter 13, I want you to look at this again. We're going to recap a little bit, and then we're going to get into a new part here. Verse 31, it says, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, as we discussed last week, what is the marker that makes somebody recognizable as a disciple of Christ? Love for one another. Now, as I said, we have to define what that means. We haven't done that yet. Because the word love no longer has the meaning that it once did. You can love a lot of stuff. Some of us, for whatever reason, have a love for Nebraska football. We need to have our heads examined. Right? When you're excited about the win over Buffalo, the bar's been lowered significantly. Okay? But yet we're still there. The love that God has, the love that Jesus is describing, is not that superficial love. We're not going to get into that anymore because we're going to dig into this deeper at a later date. Right now, we have to understand something. If love is the marker of a disciple, then are we expressing biblical love in the world that we live? We've got to define our terms. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if all things means all things and new means new, then that means your old things are no longer there. It's all new. If you're born again. But that's the problem. Is we don't use the term born again. We use the term Christian. Christian is used three times in the New Testament, three times only. Twice in Acts, once in 1 Peter. It was not a term of endearment. Remember, followers of Jesus, the disciples were followers of the way. They weren't called Christians by Christians. They were called Christians by people trying to figure out who the heck... There's these people are weird. They're doing things we don't like. They're doing things differently. How do we put a name on that group? And that's where this came from. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul's mandate to Timothy is be prepared for this. You see, you've got people who are in the group that will no longer endure sound doctrine. Because that sound doctrine will not match what they want and when it doesn't match what they want and how they feel and what they're looking for they will cast it aside and they will find somebody who will embrace them just the way they are that's not what Jesus did that's not what the disciples did but that is what the church does today you'll have people that each and every week that will go to a church and if they don't like what's being said if they don't like the music that's being sung whatever we'll just go find a different one it's no big deal as if that is what we are looking for Because the arrogance in the body of Christ today is that I am uncorrectable. I've got it figured out. You know what we call that? You have now created a God in your image. Because we don't allow Scripture to be our guide. We've seen this more prominent than ever in America. Because now we're at the point where we ignore the Old Testament in favor of the New. We attempt to deal with this judgmental, hateful God that is looking to drop the hammer. And we just come to this Jesus who's all loving and all mercy. And as we began to look through Scripture, we realized that that is not how it is. That actually there is mercy in the Old Testament. So, the church today believes in the big truth that there is one God, most of the church today. And Jesus is his son and he died for our sins. But we've accepted numerous small lies. And the reason for that is because our belief system is not grounded in anything outside of what we feel, what we've heard, and perhaps what we've read. It should come from a source of truth that is way beyond any of that, and that would be found in Scripture. Our minds aren't right. We aren't thinking correctly. Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is in enmity against God it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God so this thinking that we do has to line up scripturally and if it doesn't what should we do change the way we think Romans 12 verse 1 says I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here we have it again. 
this group of individuals that have called themselves Christian should be living their lives and their bodies as a living sacrifice that is both holy, which means set apart, and acceptable to God. The sacrifice that they brought in in the temple system had certain parameters that must be met. And if it didn't meet, what happened? It was not accepted. We should think about that for a moment. Because what do we do now? We treat God as an accessory in our lives. It's like a necklace that we put on or a watch that we wear. I'll just put him here. I'll make him fit the way that I want him to fit. We should be transformed by him, and instead we're transforming him into an image that we like, that feels good, that sounds good. What do we have to do? We're transformed why and how by the renewing of our mind. To do what? Prove what is good and acceptable. You may not know this. Okay? This might become a shock to some of you. I figured this out years ago. And maybe just because I'm more advanced than most. Okay, But every thought that goes through your head is not necessarily a good one. I know. It's shocking. You ever had a bad idea? Me neither. When you, you remember when you're young and like you recover from things faster and easier and you would do more adventurous type things than you would now because when you reach a certain point where you throw your back out sneezing it's no longer time to mess with that stuff but when I was in high school the idea of moving the trampoline against the house and climbing on the roof of the house because I can jump pretty high on the trampoline but if I start from an elevated position I bet I can go really high you know what I found out there's a weight limit to trampolines <laughs> and it hurt not good seemed like a good idea at the time I remember when my neighbor got one and there were two girls over there one was the neighbor and she was cute and as was her friend and so we went over there and I'm doing flips and all of that kind of stuff and we got the wild idea hey let's spray the hose let's just see what that does we so we got it wet and all of that and I'm jumping I'm getting ready to do the coolest thing ever at least in my mind it probably didn't look as cool as I thought it was going to and I lost my footing on the jump. It sent me sailing off. I landed on the ground basically in a push-up position and couldn't move my wrist for two weeks. But it sure seemed good. You know what? Girls weren't impressed. Not once. Not even a little. So not every idea is a good one. And that is true naturally. It's also true spiritually. Because we seem to think that if we get this idea, this must be from God. It has to be grounded in something greater than our opinion. Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about every, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your mind is important. What you think is important. Verse 8 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is really laying it out here. Think about the godly thing. I don't care what's going on here. Don't dwell on that because you thinking about it doesn't change it. You ever been in a position where maybe you couldn't make rent or pay the electric bill? Do you realize stressing about it didn't make money produce? It's just reality. And so he's saying, think about these things. And then he goes a step further. He said, what you have learned from me, and you've received from me, and you've heard from me, and you've seen in me, do those. 
Because as he says in another place, follow me as I follow Christ. You see, there are people in this world that you look to as an example, and you begin to say, okay, this is how they handled this situation. This is how I should handle this situation. And who is that person following? Christ and his mandate and scripture. Our thought life matters inherently. Whatever you believe to be true will impact the way you behave. Your beliefs about God will impact the way in which you expect God to respond in every single scenario. And if the God that you believe in and the thought process you have about him is not biblical, then your expectations and reality will be extremely disappointed. So now we looked at this last week. We're going to look at this again. This is going to be the last time. This is a tweet that went out on, on, on recently. The problem of evil. Now, I broke this down. As you can see, there are certain fallacies inside of this. But let's go through this for the last time. This is the last week, I promise. If God is supremely good, then he has a desire to eliminate evil. And we know that that is true. And if God is omnipotent, then he has the ability to eliminate evil. Him being all-powerful, certainly that is true as well. If he is omniscient, which means he knows everything, then he knows that evil exists. And he knows how to eliminate evil. Okay? Therefore, if God exists and is supremely good, he's omnipotent and he's omniscient, then evil does not exist, right? Because that God would wipe all of that out. But we know evil exists, right? So therefore, a supremely good, omnipotent, and omniscient God does not exist. Now, we began to break this down, and we began to look at this, and the one thing that we've realized is you begin to... Look at this. The more you do this, the more you can really dissect this stuff because this gets a lot of people hung up. The problem is, is they're stealing from God to make their argument against God. It's no different than, uh, oh, Lawrence Krauss, if you're familiar with him. Okay? Lawrence Krauss is the guy that they are raising to replace Richard Dawkins because he's not getting any younger. He teaches down in uh, Arizona, one of the schools down there. I can't remember which one. And he wrote a book that talking about how we have anything. And how we can have something from nothing, okay? When we think of nothing, we don't really even grasp nothing. Nothing means no thing. And when we say nothing, like your kids come up and say, man, there's nothing to eat in this house. And when you're like, child, open the fridge. I'm as bad too. There's nothing I want to eat, but we use that term. And so he says, something will come from nothing because gravity allows these systems to come out. He wrote this in a book. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Here's the problem. Something from nothing comes from what? Gravity. Surprise, gravity's not nothing. It's like a double negative or something. I wasn't very good at grammar. He stole from God to make his point. Here, we see the same thing. They're stealing from the idea of what is good. Because God is the standard of good. Everything that doesn't meet up to that standard is not good. So put that back up for me. If God is supremely good, he has a desire to eliminate evil. That's true. If he's all-powerful, he has the ability to eliminate evil. Also true. If he is all-knowing, then he knows that evil exists and he knows how to eliminate it. That's true. So if God exists and is supremely good, omnipotent, omniscient, then evil does not exist. Not true. Because there's a lot that goes into this. Now we'll come back to this, but just keep that in mind. They're stealing from God to make their case. Why are they doing that? Romans 1 gives us the answer. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. We're in verse 18. And unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known about God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. 
being understood by that thing that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse to ignore God. You have to steal from God in order to make a case against God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds as a way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets. And that the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles, the Lord and Savior, knowing this, this first, that scoffers will come in the last day wa- walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved with the same word, are reserved to fire until the day of judgment of ungodly men. Now, as we went through this, we see that this, that they willfully forget. They choose not to recall. This isn't something that they don't know. It was no different than the Pharisees ignoring what was right in front of them. They chose not to recognize that Jesus was Messiah, even though the miracles were there, even though that the dead were raised, that they were doing everything they could to eliminate that. And because of that, they did not recognize him at his coming. So where does that leave us now? It leaves us right where we should be. His truth is founded inside of God. God is truth. There is no way around it. There's no way to ignore it. We can't simply ignore God and expect to land anywhere that is true. And this is the problem. We try to do that in the natural world. We try to do that in the spiritual world. We have a lot of issues inside of the church, and the main reason for that is we no longer like truth. We are no longer accountable. We're no longer correctable. We think once we've discovered something, that's it. So, Let's begin to break this down a little bit. Now, go ahead and put up the next verse for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who is present and lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. I beg you that when I am present, uh, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments at every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Do you realize that if we did that last line and that's all we did, we would solve a lot of our issues? Because your feelings will lie. And your thought life will lie. It will come against you. It will say things. It will make you believe things. And then we have to go back to something that is greater than ourselves. That is found in the Word of God. The Scriptures have been preserved by Him to lead us and guide us. Now let's go on to the next verse here. I'm going to show you guys some stuff here. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to start at the beginning. Is where did this all begin? Where did this all begin to go? Where did this all begin to go wrong? Genesis chapter 2 is about the creation event. You see, we're trying to understand something here. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Go on to the next one. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the, made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the whole ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So, all creation has been done. The earth has been taken care of. All the creatures are made. Here we come to verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now that's interesting how he has phrased this. Because it's not said this way about anybody else, anything else. There seems to be a distinction about man. Let's go on. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah and there, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Hedekel, and it is the one that goes east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded them, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. Now let's stop for a second. Let's go back. Hold on. Go back. There you go. Four rivers spreading around. Now look at what great distinctions that he made with man. He did not say to the hippopotamus, I want you to go and tend the garden. He did not say to the hippopotamus, hey, listen, I, you can eat any tree you want, but of that one you can't. Who did he say that to? He said it to man. He took the man, put him in the garden to do what? Tend it and to keep it. That means he gave him a job, gave him work to do. So what is the center that we are noticing about the creation event? It is centered around man. Fair enough? Let's go on now. And the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable. Now, what did he do? Every other created being was brought to Adam to do what? Give him a name. Adam's job was to name him. That was his low his responsibility. There was nothing compared to him. Let's go on. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place, and then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Let's go on. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. So there's, there's something about mankind that is very distinct. Something about mankind that is extremely unique. Because when God created the world, he created it for what purpose? Mankind to reign. That was the purpose. The animals were named by man. God didn't name them. Adam named them. He gave that responsibility to him. Whose job was it to take care of the garden? It was Adam's job. It wasn't God. God wasn't down there and saying, Adam, did you plant that? Did you weed that? There were no weeds yet, but you know what I'm saying. No, he gave this job to Adam. Everything about man, the breath of life, the tree to eat from, all of these commandments were given to Adam and not any other creature. Nothing God made compared to, to mankind. Where did it go wrong? Genesis chapter 3. Look at this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You should not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and tree, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covered. What did they do? Their thought life did not match up with God's word. She was deceived. Okay? Let's go on. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God said, called to Adam and said, where are you? Go on. And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the man, what is it you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay? All true. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast. Your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now leave that up for just a minute. You see, man was the center of creation. Man had authority on the earth given by God. Man transferred that authority to the enemy because of what they had done, and what did God do immediately? He lays out exactly how he's going to solve the problem of what? Evil. How he's going to take care of this. You see, it comes down to this. There are four fundamental questions that we always have to ask. And I, I put this up, and if you can throw this up there for me again, is the first one is who is God? You have that up there? We'll get there. Maybe. I remember. No. Who is God? Who am I in relationship to God? How do we worship Him? And who is my enemy? We looked at who is God last week. We began to break this down and say, okay, well, who is God? If you go and ask people on the streets, what answers do you get? If you watch, you remember the videos. I'm not going to show them again for time's sake. But it was, first one was a Muslim imam, a Jewish rabbi and a Christian pastor. And what did they kept saying? Well, God is in you, and God is in me, and God is around, and God is my best friend, and God is this, and God is that. Do you realize that we never really did get to a biblical answer? And then they went to people in the street. This is National Geographic, so you take it for what it's worth. And they went about and asked, well, who is God? And, they, and the overwhelming answer was always like, well, I feel like God is, or I think that God is. How do we know? what God is. You see, whoever has to be grounded in something greater than your opinion, or it is just that. Opinions are based on experience. Experience is good, but it can't be the final arbiter in our life that separates truth from fiction. Because what we know about God is found in the characteristics of God. And so when we ask the question, who is God, the answer should be, strictly found of how he has revealed himself so your opinion on it doesn't matter if it's not grounded in truth but the next part of this is who am i in relationship to god now what did we just see who am i in relationship to god god created man as the pinnacle of creation gave authority to man so there is a special relationship that god has with mankind fair enough and then we see that relationship separated and severed in Genesis chapter 3. 
that is where evil comes in. Okay? Well, let's keep moving. Neil, are you ready? We're going to go. Let's go to the next verse. Romans chapter 5. What do we see? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Now, let me ask you this. Why do we have death in the world? The biblical answer is because of sin. Is that what most people would say? No, they would come up with some other answer. Why do we have death? We have death because of sin. Remember, sickness is slow death. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from when? Adam to Moses. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Now, who is that him? Jesus. So we see Adam as a prefiguration of Jesus. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the man, one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So, what happened? This is talking about salvation. How much does man mean to God? He died for it. He did not die for the elephants, the ostriches, the sooner fans joke big game this week i got to get it all out right now i won't be able to do this next sunday we all know it it's all coming i got to get it it's man man separated from god by what evil because the standards god man didn't meet it what does god do makes a way let's go on to the next one the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So what's he doing? He's making a way. Man sinned, God took care of it. Go on. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So do we see a trend? The trend is, is that man screwed up and separated themselves from God by doing what they thought was good. Because, boy, that tree looked good. The fruit looks good, and it's going to make me wise, and I'm going to be able to do all of this stuff. But God from the foundation of the world, had this planned out. Let's go on to the next one. Let's keep plugging along. 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, by which uh, also you received, and by which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, that's another interesting term. Because if I ask people, what is the gospel? You get all sorts of answers. Number one being is, it's the good news. And the follow-up question, well, what is the news, and why is it good? The number two answer, you guys know what the number two answer would be? I've asked this question with groups all over the place. Well, it's the first four books of the Bible, the Gospels, right? Well, let's see what Paul says. For I deliver to you, first of all, that's which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. So what is the Gospel? Those three things. Christ died, was buried, and resurrected according to 
the scriptures. He's going back to the basis of truth. The fact that Christ died is irrelevant if it's not grounded in something greater than just somebody died. You know people died by crucifixion all the time? All the time. What made Jesus the Messiah? Not his declaration. Because people declared themselves Messiah all the time. It was founded in the scriptures. Verse 5, and he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren of one, at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So what happened? Jesus died, just like Scripture said. And he was buried, just like Scripture said. And then he was resurrected, just like Scripture said. Who would have guessed? And then there's a whole slug of eyewitnesses that saw him. They all saw him die. They all saw him buried. And then they all saw him walking around and eating with them and hanging out. There was a whole bunch of them. 500 at once. Some will argue that this was just a mass hallucination. Do you realize mass hallucinations don't work? You might be crazy and hallucinate. But a group, we're not going to have the same one. Because you might be riding an ostrich over a rainbow. And I might be watching Nebraska beat Oklahoma. I can't. I, I can't. It's, I'm, we're praying, y'all. But the thing is, is that it was always what? According to the Scripture. That means that God knew exactly that what was going to have to take place. He said it in Genesis chapter 3. This is what's going to happen. The very beginning. Now, let's go to the next part here. Because if you fast forward to verse 20, it says, Now Christ is risen from the dead. And it's become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all should be made alive. So is that true? We've got death through Adam, life through Christ. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruit after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. When he puts all an end to all rule and all authority and all power. Let's go on. For he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. That God may be all in all. Now stop for one second. He's going to reign until all enemies are put under his feet. So we see a kind of a, a road map, so to speak, of how things are going to take place. And what is the last enemy that is going to be dealt with? Death. And how did death come into power? By sin. So the evil separated us from God. But who is fixing the problem? God is. God is. It's important that we get this and understand this. Now let's go on. <coughs> because we see here, in the book of Revelation, kind of the fruition. Now, Revelation can be very confusing, but it doesn't have to be. It's confusing. Do you know why? Because we don't know our Old Testament. Because much of the church world today has foregone that saying that's Old Covenant. That contains Old Covenant, but those Old Covenants are the foundation that the New is built upon. And because we don't understand the Old Testament, we don't understand the New because there are over 800 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Now, this is the revelation of Jesus given to John. John is looking into the future. He's seeing something. Look what he says. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Okay, so what does that mean? It's new. He didn't fix the old one. He destroyed it. Now, does that sound like something we read earlier? The old one wasn't cleaned up and fixed. It died with Christ and was made new. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now hold on one second. What do we see? Watch very carefully. The holy city, which is what? It's Jerusalem. That's God's center point. He picked it. Don't know why? He likes the land, I guess. I don't know. He's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's something unique about this, okay? He will dwell with whom? And whom will be his people? His followers. What do we not notice, mention, any of the other created beings? It's all about man. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, who am I in relationship to God? This is one of the four fundamentals that a believer must understand. If you don't understand it, your walk with God will be hampered by this. Because when you begin to understand who you are in relationship to God, it will set you free from a lot of the nonsense that we deal with. God's going to do what? All of that away. Now let's go on. Then he, uh, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write for, the, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. But cowardly, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the un- abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see the distinction between the two groups. They're not the same. Let's go on. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now stop for a moment. Who is the bride, the lamb's wife? It's the body of believers that we call the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Go on. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, and 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its walls were of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chal- uh, chalkis, ah, whatever, you figured out. The fourth emerald, 
the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now, stop for a minute. The temple part is a big deal to a Jew. Who, who is this written to? Jewish people. This is Jewish believers. This is written by a Jew. The temple's big. The nation of those who are saved shall walk in its lights, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Now, you need to understand how significant that is. Because the gates of a city were open during the day when you could see. But they shut them at night so that bad people couldn't get in. But guess what? There no, is no night. There's also no more bad people. Because that has been taken care of. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, but there shall be by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's go on. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where's this water coming from? From his throne. In the middle of a street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, which each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were, more, uh, were for the healing of the nation, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall <coughs> excuse me, see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. <coughs> excuse me. There shall be no night there. there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Let's go on. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Now stop for just a second there. The words that were given to John are faithful and true. Why? Because of the source that they came from. It's the God of what? The holy prophets. All of those who came before. Those things that we read, the prophets prophesying that through the scriptures that Jesus would die, be buried, and resurrected. It's the same God. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words and the prophecy of this book. Quickly does not mean like quickly. It means when he comes, it comes fast. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now stop for a second. Let's go back one second. I want to show you something. You've got to understand something. He says, now I, John. Now what does that sound like when it's written that way? It's his testimony. Remember that the gospel themselves are the eyewitness testimonies of what they read, what they saw, what they heard, what they knew. That's all it is. We tend to make them more spiritual. We tend to be like, well, you know, this is kind of like chicken soup for the soul. You've got to understand, when they wrote those things down, they wrote them down because that's what they saw and that's what they heard. The best example is in Luke where the blood and water flowed out of the side. We didn't even know what that was until the early 1900s. He's just writing down what he saw. What is John doing? I, John, saw and heard these things. When I heard and I saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Let's go on. 
And he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant. That's interesting, because where do we put angels? Where are they? With us, their created being. Remember, it talks about, I think it's in Hebrews, that angels desire to look into the things of God that we have because they are not the pinnacle of creation. Mankind is. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He is who is holy, let him be holy still. Separating the two groups again. We have a choice to make. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now, isn't that interesting how Jesus just said that? I, Jesus. This is his testimony. He sent his angel to testify. Verse 17. And the spirit of the bride say, come. And let him, he, him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This is powerful, you guys. This is very powerful. Because what do we see? Who am I in relationship to God? Look what God has gone through to bring us back to himself. Think about that. See, we, we, we lose sight of that. We get caught up in the mundane and the minutiae of our everyday life. And when things are bad and they hit and they hurt and we emotionally are a mess, we allow that to dictate what truth is. But truth never changes. Our understanding of it may be. But the truth itself never changes. In Genesis, we have paradise lost. And in Revelation, we have paradise regained. And in between those two events is everything that God is doing to bring us back to himself. More than what the angels experienced. Now, let's look at this tweet for the last time. Pull that up for me. If God is supremely good, then he has a desire to eliminate evil. That is absolutely true. In fact, he created a world in which evil did not exist. If God is omnipotent, he is able to eliminate evil. Absolutely. And he's gonna. If God is omniscient, he knows that evil exists and he knows how to eliminate it. We see it in the first few verses of Genesis 3. He knows exactly what's got to be done. If God exists and is supremely good and omnipotent and omniscient, then evil does not exist. That's where we turn. You see, they've stolen from God a worldview of which they don't hold to, to make a case against God. It's no different than we say, for since the beginning of times, the scoffers are going to come. Now, where is his coming? Because all things have been as they were from the beginning. You see, God's plan, 
you're trying to stop in the middle. You guys remember when I drew up that timeline for you? And we have the Old Testament, which covers approximately 4,000 years. And you've got the New Testament, which is about 100 years. And when you compare those two, it's like minuscule. But God's plan from the beginning was laid out. You see, God is going to take care of evil. But he doesn't move on our timeline. He moves on his and his alone. So as we begin to look at this, we can answer this question confidently, but here's the thing. Who am I in relationship to God? Is there any human being alive that would go through all of this for anybody else? The answer is no. We don't have it in us. But a great and loving and merciful creator God absolutely does. This is who we are in relationship to him. Where God has made it about us, but it's us looking to him is where we find that peace and we find that truth and we find that guidance. Guys, this is what we've got to begin to understand, how powerful it is of who God has made us to be. It's not about our happiness, because I assure you, Paul sitting in prison, writing, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, was not having a pleasant experience. It wasn't his best life now. His best life was when he was serving with the Pharisees and persecuting the Christians. That's when things were good for him. It turned really south the moment he had that encounter with Jesus. We've got it backwards. We've got to begin to change the way we think. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is true and that it guides us. And I thank you that your spirit is leading us and guiding us into all truth. And Lord, I just pray that you are moving in our lives and softening our hearts. That we don't allow anything to dictate our view of who you are outside of how you have revealed yourself to us. That we won't allow the opinions of the world, the opinions of man, or the opinions of our circumstances to dictate who you are and how you respond. We will always turn to what you have left for us to guide us, and that is your word. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And I thank you, Lord, that as we continue to go into this and grow into this, Lord, that we are moving up and our understanding of who we are in relationship with you and who you are and how you respond so that we can truly show the love and mercy and compassion that you have poured on us with the rest of the world. And so, Lord, I thank you that each and every day is an opportunity that we have to live our life to the fullest for you, that every word we speak and action we take will bring glory to you. And anything that is not good and just and noble and pure and holy, we won't live in that world. We won't think on those things. We will rise above it and be devoted to you and you alone. And so, Lord, we thank you for all the things that you continue to do in our lives that we can be used for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.